Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Chris Cottonor, executive producer of Deep State Radio. I'm excited to announce that we're introducing additional membership benefits beginning today. On Mondays and Thursdays, our podcasts will continue to run for about 45 minutes, but the final 15 minutes of each show will only be available to our members. On Wednesdays and Fridays, members will receive exclusive written content from our host, David Rothkoff. As always, members will receive access to our exclusive Slack community, ad-free listening via private member feed, free access to live virtual webinars, and transcripts of each episode. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash DSR member. That's bit.ly slash DSR member. For a limited time, use code October launch, all one word, and receive 10% off the regular price of $6.99 per month. Thank you and enjoy the episode. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another special episode of the podcast. As you know, each week we try to bring somebody who has written a book we think is important and of great quality to you, our listeners. And this week, our guest is David Wessel, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, one of the really great economic journalists of our generation, and the author of a new book called Only the Rich Can Play which is a deep dive into how Washington really works and in many respects does not work for all of us. Hi, David. Welcome. Good to be with you, David. I thought the book was great. I thought the book was important because, you know, Washington media, being what it is, tends to talk about personalities and big issues and easy to grasp things. And when It's process or the long term or the behind the scenes, the details get lost. And yet we don't end up with the outcomes we want and people are frustrated and wonder why. And I think your book does a great job of describing that around one particular idea, which sounds meritorious enough, which is the idea of opportunity zones and how it did not end up working for the people it was advertised to help. What set you on this trail? I'm now at the Brookings Institution, and one of my colleagues, Adam Looney, who's a public finance economist, a former Obama Treasury official, is one of these guys who's always paying attention to the minutiae and tax bills. And he came into my office one day talking about this, and it sounded kind of interesting, the idea that how can we help left-behind communities by getting rich people to put money into them? And I was kind of interested in that whole question. And then he happened to drop that this was the brainchild of Sean Parker and Napster, of Napster and Facebook fame. And I realized, oh, so this could be more than some Brookings white paper. This could actually be a good story, a good narrative. 
And that's what got me going on it. If the character you're writing about's already been played by Justin Timberlake, you know you're sort of headed into a popular direction, right? That's right, right. I'm trying to figure out, like, can we get Justin Timberlake to play in the Netflix series on my book? As I was thinking about whether I wanted to take the time to do this in the spring of 2019, I heard that there was an Opportunity Zone Expo at the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. And remembering how good the scenes were in the big short, I thought, well, if I do this project and I don't go to Las Vegas, I'll forever regret it. So I went to this Opportunity Zone Expo at the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas, which I learned there is actually in an Opportunity Zone, believe it or not. And it was like seeing a gold rush for the 21st century. The number of people who were either trying to raise money, trying to find ways to avoid paying taxes, or mostly people who were trying to be middlemen between those two sets of people was just overwhelming and fascinating. And the people were such extroverts. And that's why I decided this would be fun to do. The people at the Mandalay Bay, were they poor people from needy neighborhoods? Uh, Not too many. Uh, Zero, for instance. They were mostly people who were in the business of exploiting the tax code to help their clients save money or to raise money at cheaper rates. Lots of lawyers, accountants, tax planners, wealth managers, real estate fund managers, some people from who'd been involved in getting this legislation through Congress, promoting it. Some people who were rich and looking for a way to cut taxes, cut their taxes. Some people, it was fascinating to me, who actually seemed to pay four or $500 to come to this conference so they could ask for tax advice in a public setting, which was just bizarre. And some people who were looking to raise money for real estate projects and stuff. There was very little conversation there, some, but not very much about the social benefits, the stated purpose of opportunity zones. This was all like, how can I get my slice of this pie before someone else does? So the core of the idea, which you describe very well in the book, sounds like virtue itself. 8,000 parts of the United States that don't get enough development. Development in the U.S. is, is very heavily concentrated in few areas. Venture capital, investment capital goes to just a few areas. How do you get it into these 8,000 places? You create some tax breaks, and then the rich will put their money into these places and create infrastructure and jobs and economic growth for poor middle-class Americans. Where did it go wrong? Well, I think you describe it well. And there have been some attempts like this in the past that were had some mixed success. Where this one went wrong, I think, is those past attempts. There's one's called the New Market Tax Credit. There's the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. There's some others. They are deemed to be very bureaucratic, in part because Congress set them up to give the Treasury the right to kind of say yes or no to projects or intermediaries. The proponents of this idea, Sean Parker and the think tank he funded in Washington, the Economic Innovation Group, thought that, well, let's go in the other direction. Let's have as few rules as possible, as many zones as possible, and let the money flow to where it'll go. And I think the problem with that is that with 8,764 opportunity zones, some of which were chosen rather foolishly, the money is going mainly to places that really didn't need the incentive. Austin, Texas asked, the city government asked for four opportunity zones. The governor there designated 21. 
In the book, I describe downtown Portland, Oregon is an opportunity zone. And there's a Ritz-Carlton hotel and condo complex going up there. So I think they had too much faith that investors would actually put money into the desired locations, too little appreciation of just how aggressive the tax avoidance industry is at exploiting these things, and too much antipathy to oversight by the Treasury or some other regulatory agency to make sure that these things go in the right direction. And finally, some previous proposals for things like this did require you to say, at least say that you were doing something for people in the community. Some of them actually required you to hire some people in the community. This has none of that. You don't even have to pretend that what you're doing helps the people who live there. If it's an opportunity zone and you can get local zoning permission, you can do anything you want, even self-storage facilities, which don't employ anybody. You know, this took place, I, I, I think was passed in 2017. And if I recall correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, the president of the United States was a real estate developer who took advantage of scammy tax deals like this all the time and really tried to push them to their limits. And even though this deal had, you know, at that original dinner, there was a, you know, Democratic economic advisor there. There were some Democrats who supported this thing. It has a lot of hallmarks of this kind of well, it has a lot of Trumpiness to it, you know, this kind of idea that it's not that they have antipathy to regulation, they're just allergic to it, not because of some ideological reason, but because they want to get away with as much as they can. And, right. and one of the things that I found most astonishing, not astonishing because I've been in Washington too long, I, but I found most egregious was that not only were the opportunity zones in some places that didn't need it, but apparently the way the law was written you could get the opportunity zone benefits in zones that were adjacent to the opportunity zone. It wasn't just that they picked the wrong places, but you could be next to it and you could still get the benefit. Is that correct? Not, not quite. So a couple of things. One is it did begin as a bipartisan thing. The bill was introduced in 2016 and the big proponents were Cory Booker, the Democrat from New Jersey, and Tim Scott, the Republican from South Carolina. It got branded as a Trump tax cut because it was in the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which passed only with Republican votes. I don't think that the Trump or, or his real estate friends cooked this up. It's just that the real estate industry for a long time has had very favorable tax treatment. And if anybody's going to figure out how to exploit something like this, it's going to be real estate folks, including people like Jared Kushner, who did. Uh, interestingly, Sean Parker, and I think this is part of his naivete, he really had an idea that this would go to support startup businesses. But because it, it was kind of not written by people who are expert in how things really work, there's actually not that much going to startup businesses. There, there's some, but the real estate agents claimed it. On the contiguous zones, a governor could pick a zone that wasn't otherwise eligible, a census tract, if it was next to an opportunity zone. And several did, but it it's, uh, still has to be designated as an opportunity zone by the governor. There's a really interesting case in Baltimore where there's a huge project going up, and it only qualified because it, it was adjacent to an opportunity zone by a sliver of land smaller than a football field. And this was a big project that already had huge hundreds of million dollars of subsidy from the city and half a billion dollars of money from Goldman Sachs. And now it's got opportunity zone money on top of that. Opportunity Zone investors investing in a big project in Baltimore 
which I'm sure will be a great project for Baltimore, but they're investing in something that already has Goldman Sachs that already deemed worthy of its own money without the tax break. I seem to recall that something like three quarters of the opportunity zones that were designated didn't get any money. Most of the money went to the top quarter and most of that went to the top 1%. Again, sort of following the pattern in, in, right. in the US economy. Right. So unfortunately, because this became law through the reconciliation process, a provision that would have required more robust reporting was stripped out. The Treasury has gathered some data, most of which we haven't seen, but some economists from the Joint Tax Committee of Congress got to look at most, though not all, of the Opportunity Zone tax returns for 2019. And they found that 84% of the zones got zero money, and half the money went to the best off 1% of zones. What do you expect? Most investors who have big bucks are investing for the highest reward at the lowest return. Most, not all, most are not going to invest in some lousy neighborhood because they think it'll be good for the people who live there. And that's the problem with using the tax code to kind of get rich people to put their money where you want it to go. I mean, sometimes I think maybe we should just bite the bullet, raise taxes on rich people, and the government could put the money into these communities. We won't have all these leaky hoses. But that just doesn't seem to be very popular. At least it wasn't until recently. Well, there have been a number of you know, ideas and things trying to, to tackle this. I noticed you know, one of the things that resonated with was what I thought was a good idea by Steve Case, who observed that most of the venture capital in the U.S. went to three states. And he has promoted for a long time the idea of trying to find ways to promote investment flows into the rest of the states because right. venture capital tends to, to lead to new companies, new jobs, and so forth. Is there a right way to do it? Well, I don't know. So I definitely think there's a better way to do it. I think this particular tax break, you have to remember, I mean, the subtitle of my book, I mean, the title of the book is Only the Rich Can Play. And the reason that's the title is that the only people who can put money into these things are people who have unrealized capital gains. That is, say, profits on stock that they bought a long time ago that they haven't sold yet. So I think that part of the problem with this thing is it was written primarily to get make it lucrative to those people, not to think about how to maximize the impact. So a smaller number of zones, more carefully targeted, perhaps deeper tax breaks if you invest in a really, really bad neighborhood, as opposed to one that's already gentrifying. Some things ruled out like no self-storage facilities and no luxury student housing in college towns that qualify as poor because the college kids show up in the census is not making any money. Um, so more oversight and, and perhaps more requirement that you show and get the community buy-in that this project is going to help people in the community. But that would mean more rules and more red tape. And there's always a risk. You do too much. You don't get the money. Hello, Deep State listeners. We're working hard to bring you additional programming, and we'd like for you to help shape it by completing our survey. Those who complete the survey will be entered to win one of three guest appearances on a future episode of Deep State Radio. To complete the survey, please visit bit.ly slash dsrsurvey2021. That's bit.ly slash dsrsurvey2021. Now back to the show. One of the things that many people will conclude if they read the book is that 
you know, this is Washington the way we thought it was. And, you know, that that tax bill ended up benefiting the, the top 10 percent, not the rest of us so much. It benefited them to a much greater extent than was advertised in the legislation. And we've seen this happen over and over again. Even now, as President Biden is preparing his packages and trying to pay for them, there are, you know, a couple of members of Congress who are sitting there doing the bidding of, of rich people. Let's, you know, let's not tax billionaires, said Joe Manchin minutes ago. Let's right. not tax corporations, said Kristen Cinema for the past couple of weeks. Is the way our system works, the way money goes into our system, so corrupting that we can't really expect different? Well, that's a pretty pessimistic way of putting it, but I'm afraid the recent evidence is supports that. In this case, what I learn is that if you're a rich guy and you're smart enough to hire some Washington insiders, you can get something into law without a whole lot of scrutiny. Most of us don't have that option. I don't think you and I could get a provision into the pending reconciliation bill. And they did it with a very good strategy. I give them credit for that. They laid the groundwork very carefully to make the case that economic inequality was partly geographic inequality. And they just happened to have this tax break in their back pocket of the solution. And they recruited some good people. And they basically could do something that most people can't. I think it's fine that rich people, Steve Case is a good example, identify problems and ways in which we can address them, the public policy to address them. I just don't think we should let them essentially write those tax laws. The one that really grabs me about what you said is this provision called carried interest. That's the tax break that private equity people get that allow them to pay the lower capital gains tax rate on income that any reasonable person would say, this is just like another form of salary. You should pay the higher ordinary income rates. And it's constantly talked about as a loophole we ought to close. Democrats campaign on it, including Hillary Clinton, including Joe Biden. It was in this proposal and it's already vanished. So the ability of moneyed interest to, even when there's a firm proposal to, to, do, to tamp down something that stops us from taxing them is really pretty amazing. It's almost more amazing now. When the Republicans were in charge and there wasn't much concern about inequality and you know you had a real estate developer as president, okay, I don't think any of us expected them to tax the rich. But now we see that when this reconciliation bill gets through, there might not be very much tax increases on the rich at all, despite all the campaign rhetoric. It's really astounding. Well, it's particularly astounding when you think of the degree of some of the wealth that we're talking about, right? You know, they, they, there's some objection here to a billionaire's tax even though billionaires are sort of up in the realm where they can't even spend what they've got in their lifetimes. Absolutely. And the thing that's so interesting to me about this one is there are easier ways to tax these people that have been rejected. So now we have this newfangled tax. The idea that when you die, your assets can pass to your kids and the fact that they appreciate it in your lifetime and you never paid capital gains taxes on them now they don't have to pay capital gains taxes. So taxing capital gains at death, which has been an idea kicking around for decades, that was proposed and died almost immediately. Sometimes the farm lobby becomes, you know, you think that every rich person in America was a farmer or something. And so the reason we're talking about this 
rather a novel billionaire's tax is partly because it's a resurrection of Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax from her campaign. But secondly, because the easier ways to tax really rich people seem to have fallen off the table. I don't sure this one's going to make it through either. Right. And of course, all these taxes are the things that contribute to the rich people getting richer. What I'm concerned about opportunity zones at bottom is that the way it was written into law and administered by the Trump Treasury will mean that when we get all the information and we can step back and look at this, it will have done more to cut taxes for rich people than it will have done to help the poor people in the communities it was supposed to be helping. And that's outrageous. No question about it. it. President of the United States is about to get on a plane tomorrow. We're recording this on a Wednesday, and he's going to go and fly off to some meetings in Europe. One of the things that's likely to come up is this idea of a global minimum tax of 15% on companies, I guess. Do you think that's a good idea that, that may have some benefit in terms of making taxes worldwide more of a level playing field? Absolutely. So, as you know, David, there's been what's often described as a race to the bottom. And multinational corporations have an extraordinary ability to move profits to low tax jurisdictions without moving jobs or assets there. And until really, until relatively recently, the conversations among countries to try and put a floor on this had failed. And I actually give Janet Yellen a lot of credit for helping to negotiate the kind of a conclusion here. It's going to require approval by the Senate to be really effective, and that's up and up and in doubt. But I think that the latest iterations of the reconciliation bill, which would set a 15% minimum tax in another category, but it's the same idea, are really helpful. If they work, and it's hard to administer them because corporations are so good at this game, they will allow us to raise more money from corporations, the tax revenue that can be used for the reasons that we need tax revenue. So it's interesting, though, that somehow setting a minimum tax is okay with Kirsten Cinema, but raising their tax rate on corporations isn't. It's kind of a little bit hard for me to figure out what her principles are. Principles. Interesting. <laughs> interesting choice of words. Well, if the Democrats can't get it done now, if they can't follow through on some of the things that Elizabeth Warren was talking about, do you see any hope on the horizon that the system is going to become more, more equitable? Or, you know, I mean, we've had 40 years of growing inequality in the United States aided and abetted by government that has given the rich more and more power, also Citizens United and so forth. Do you think that's, you know, just a trajectory we're on for the foreseeable future? I agree with you that the Democrats better make use of this opportunity or they're gonna, it's going to be a long time before they can address it. As you know, they're handicapped by the fact that they have a very slim majority in the House and the Senate is evenly split. So it's hard to do big things when you have in that situation. This isn't like Lyndon Johnson. But I would say that if they don't do this now, it will come later after more uproar from people that the Occupy demonstrations, which kind of put the 99% slogan on the map, but fizzled. I think that we're, I think some of Trump's support, not all of it, but some of Trump's support is a cry from people who feel left out. And if we continue on the trend we're on, where the wealthiest people did very well during the pandemic, 
because the stock market kept going up and you know Tesla is now worth a trillion dollars the market value of Tesla is on a trillion dollars i think that at some point the system will crack and people will demand change i think the fact that the progressives in the democratic party have done so well is one early sign of that but in terms of getting congress to do something given the widespread expectation that republicans will take the house in 2022, I'd say this is the moment for the de- Democrats to act, or it may be a long wait, and it may be violent before we actually get something done. And you said I was offering a depressing <laughs> interpretation of how things, how, how things are going. I, I think you're right. I do think it may end up being a long wait, because apparently we've got 48 Democrats in the Senate who support this kind of tax reform, and that's just not enough. There is a, a, a majority in the Senate that are interested in preserving the status quo for the people who have the most. Right. But that said, your point earlier is a good one. A 15% minimum on corporations, the way it works is what you report to your shareholders on your books, your taxes would have to equal 15% of that, not on the books that you show to the IRS, which allows you to pay much less. That would be a, a giant step in a good direction. So. I'm actually, although I'm disappointed that the tax reform elements of this thing have been whittled away and there won't be as progressive a tax bill coming out of this as I had hoped, I do think we have to be careful that they could get a pretty big half a loaf. The spending on this bill on childcare or education or climate change, whatever they get, plus the infrastructure thing, is a significant accomplishment. And I think the Democrats would make a mistake if they say, oh, we failed. We only got a trillion and a half dollars, not three trillion. So there is a bit of marketing to do here. But on your fundamental point, I agree. The tax code doesn't look like it'll be that much more progressive after this as than it was before. And that's a real missed opportunity. Well, I have to say your point there is not only one I agree with, but it was a subject of my column today in the Daily Beast, in which I talked to seven or eight different Democrats, all of whom made the same point which is you don't do yourself any favors by complaining about what doesn't make it into your bill, particularly when things are close politically. You need to celebrate your achievements. Yeah, and especially when you, the size of the bill, the compromise bill, is still pretty darn big. It's not like they settled for 15 cents. No, indeed. If, in fact, by the time we get to the end of this year, say that bill is, the Build Back Better bill is a trillion and a half or $2 trillion, and the infrastructure bill is a trillion and the America Rescue Package is 1.9 trillion. That's $5 trillion in investing in the United States. And when was the last time that happened? Exactly. That's something that may be a source of some encouragement. I'm happy to be able to end on a positive note. David Wessel's book is Only the Rich Can Play. Um, you can tell by the title, it's about Washington and, and about the way power works in the United States, but it's it's the kind of very compelling read about how things work that I think would benefit everybody. I encourage you to go out and get the book. Thank you very much, David, for joining us. Thanks for joining us. You want to know more about what we've got going on, go to the dsrnetwork.com and uh, you can see what's up, all the new benefits that exist for membership. And if you click on membership for less than the price of a pumpkin spice latte a month. You can be a member and support what we're doing. I personally would recommend you just skip the pumpkin spice lattes altogether, but that's a matter of personal taste. But uh, go check it out, and we'll see you again here sometime soon. In the meantime, everybody, 
Take care. Bye-bye.